Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. The passage we'll be reading from today is an excerpt from Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 35. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, for the fat of the kidneys and rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Amen. Thank you, Trenton. Please be seated. We are looking at Isaiah 34 and 35, and I trust we will understand what those two chapters look like inside of their literary context. But as Americans, we are proud of the fact that we get to choose our government leaders. In fact, in just a few short days, we will elect either a Republican, a Democrat, or even a Libertarian to a position of power. And I trust you will vote. We may not always like the choices presented to us on the ballot, but we get to vote. Additionally, as American consumers in a free market economy, we've come to expect a lot of choices when it comes to products and services. For example, which TV service do I use? And then once it's hooked up, which channel will I watch? Do I want a regular coffee or a coffee drink or a cup of mud? What should I choose to wear? What route do I take to get to work? Do I like a friend's post on Facebook and blah, 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 blah? We are confronted continually with choices. So one might wonder, how many choices or decisions do we make in a day? We make thousands of choices every day. Researchers at Cornell University estimate we make 226.7 decisions each day. I always love that, like 2.5 kids. Like, what does the half a kid look like? Uh, 226.7 decisions each day on, on food alone. And as your level of responsibility increases, so does the multitude of choices you have to make. It's estimated that the average adult makes about 35,000 remotely conscious decisions each day. Each decision, of course, carries certain consequences with it that are both good and bad, and many are unintended. 
but of the tens of thousands of choices that you make in an hour a day, a week, a month, and a year, there's only one decision or choice that overrides all decisions, and that is whether you will choose God or choose self. That decision confronts all of us as we live our lives. We see this idea carried forward from Genesis all the way through the Bible. The choice began in the garden with Adam and Eve. It continued with Cain and Abel, the daughters of men and the sons of God, those in the ark and those outside the ark. You will either side with Moses who chose to suffer for what he held by faith or embrace the riches of Egypt. You will either align with the Jews and leave Egypt with them or you will remain behind and perish. Those who sided with Joshua and chose God or those who chose self. Every judge made a choice. You will either choose with Ruth to follow Naomi or remain in Moab with Orpah. Every king and every citizen made a choice. When Jesus came, his audience made a choice. They would either accept him as the fulfillment of the seed promise and the completion of the blood picture, or they would fabricate a faith of their own doing. With Peter, you will either obey God or obey the government, but you cannot obey both equally. With Luke, you will either follow Paul or, like Demas, love this present world instead. The Bible only gives us two choices when it comes to this world. You will either choose Jesus and receive life, or you will choose not to believe and receive death, but the choice is yours. In our passage, Isaiah 34 and 35, it shows us the consequence of that choice. If you reject God, you are in chapter 34. If you receive God, you are in chapter 35. One of our big takeaways from the Reformation last week in focusing or refocusing on worship was that we learned that in the gathering is for the worship of God. It's not for our felt needs or those of the unbelieving. And thus our Sunday study works to be objective rather than subjective. The question we ask is simple. What does this passage, Isaiah 34 and 35, tell us about God? What we learn objectively is that God will punish all unbelievers. And as distasteful as that is, as descriptive and abhorrent as that is, that is what this text tells us. And if we are an unbeliever, we should fear. This passage also tells us, chapter 35, that God will rescue his people, and thus we can, as the people of God, rest. But that choice is confronting each and every one of us. Before we go any further, let us pray. Our Father, we do live in a world that is broken and in open rebellion against you. We see the symptoms of this with gender confusion, a non-biblical view of marriage, the open assault against children, the choice of convenience over prenatal life. We see it in racism and a growing intolerance of biblical Christianity. And although the symptoms can make us depressed and angry and hopeless, we know that the only solution and answer has been and always will be Jesus. Jesus is the pivot on which all of this swings. Jesus asked his disciples and he asks us, who do you say that I am? That is the question and the answer is final and absolute. This choice of who we think he is decides for us our eternal resting place. It will either be in our understanding of heaven or in hell. The one is marked by presence, the other is absence. And so today, as we consider this passage in Isaiah, chapters 34 and 35, may we pay attention to what it says objectively concerning you and your actions. Let us not follow the ways of this world in our thinking, but let us seek 
to rely on the Bible to inform us and to guard us against this world. Now may you open our eyes and our ears and our mind to truth and may we find in Jesus all of our joy and purpose. It is in his name that we approach you. Amen. What I'm wanting to do initially is to place the passage we are considering in its uh, larger context. This is something we do on a regular basis, but I don't want us to forget that we are actually in the book of Isaiah, and we've covered a lot of ground from chapters 1 all the way through 33. But in our particular passage, as we will see, Isaiah 34 and 35 is a picture of contrasts. Chapter 34 is the outcome that awaits the unbeliever, and chapter 35 is the outcome that awaits the believer. And what's really interesting about those two chapters is that the book of Revelation quotes from Isaiah 34, and then the Gospels are quoting from Isaiah 35. So you see this picture of contrasts, and I'll try to tease that out and explain it in the next few moments. But so far in our journey, we've looked at chapters 1 through 35. We are this morning, and what we have is a nation under the vassal treaty, the Mosaic Code, the law of Moses given on Mount Sinai. That is a conditional contract between God and his people. The people have been in rebellion against them, and because of that broken law, they are facing the judgment of God, and ultimately that nation shall end up in captivity, in exile. Next week, we'll look at chapters 36 through 39. That is what many have called a historical interlude. It transitions us from Assyria, that is a threat in chapters 1 through 35, to Babylon in chapters 38 and 39, and then chapters 40 through 66. And then in chapters 40 through 66, we have this celebration of who God is and the promises of God in the royal gift covenant. We see a fulfilled promise in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But when we look at the book of Isaiah, we have noted how Isaiah is... Uh, presentation of multiple little volumes, chapters 1 through 12, with 12 being the, the culmination of that first section, then chapters 13 through 27, chapters 24 through 27 being a culmination or summary of that section, 24 gives us judgment, 25, 26, and 27, a song of praise. Again, that idea that when God finally inaugurates or culminates his program, there's both judgment and hope, we see this at the second coming of Jesus. We have seen that in the book of Revelation. Now, in our section, chapters 28 through 35, this chapter, 34 through 35, is really repeating what has been said. 34 is judgment. 35 is hope. You'll remember in chapters 28 through 33, we had these six woes against the nation and nations. But in the midst of all this judgment, God continues to offer us hope. So even though we preach judgment, as it were, for those who do not believe, we extend to those same people hope. But the hope that we have is in Christ Jesus. Again, noting this idea that in chapter 34, you have the book of Revelation, you have the nightmare. And then in chapter 35, you have the Gospels and you have the dream. And we'll see that throughout. When you look at chapter 34, you have this initial introduction stated in verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, all peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. So there's this universal appeal for people to listen to what the prophet is about to say. And then you have these statements, four statements of for the Lord. In verse 2, for the Lord is enraged against all the nations. And you're going to see this pattern repeated in chapter 34. 
So you have this repetition of the Lord is. And then you have this very graphic description of the judgment that's going to come upon those who do not believe in God. Notice verse 2. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. And again, you have this parallelism taking place. This is Hebrew poetry. So he's simply saying the same thing, and it's being emphatic. And he has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. This is that idea of the ban. He has placed them for destruction. And then notice verse 3. Their slain shall be cast out. The stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Verse 5, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. You have this movement of God's judgment taking place on the hosts of heaven. Now it's directed towards the inhabitants of the earth, Edom being representative of those who reject God. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction, the Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. So we have this very graphic depiction in chapter 35 of God's judgment against the unbelieving. This section that we are considering in chapter 34 is marked by a fourfold repetition of the statement, the Lord is or the Lord has. The imagery of this section is incredibly gruesome. The Lord is depicted as raging with uncontrolled anger, spreading dead bodies on the ground with abandon, flooding the earth with their gore and thirsty for their blood. It's a picture of God that we would in the flesh rather not contemplate. But it is the picture that God moved Isaiah to record and that the Spirit has preserved to remind us of how great God's wrath is against sin. And sometimes we read chapter 34 and we find the description offensive. But the point is that sin is as offensive to God. This is the nightmare. The multitude of the slaughter is cosmic. The mountains will flow with blood and the heavens decay like leaves falling from a tree. The fat and blood of which sate the sword of the Lord and soaked the soil of the land. The Lord is enraged against all the nations. And the Lord has a sword and it is sated with blood. It is gorged with blood. And Edom is used to epitomize the hostile nations that oppose God. So you have these first two, the Lord is enraged. The Lord has a sword. The third and fourth occurrence found in verse 6 and then in verse 8. Notice what the text says. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. The Lord has a sacrifice, a great slaughter. This is what awaits the unbelieving. And then the Lord has a day of vengeance in verse 8. Notice the language of verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch night and day. Notice the eternality of the language. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. 
The Lord has a day of vengeance. The land itself shall be devastated and uninhabited by humans. What is interesting of chapters 34 and 35, which is true throughout the book of Isaiah, that you have these descriptives that show us what the inhabitants are like. In chapter 34, notice it says, Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. I think it is interesting, if you have a King James Bible, in chapter 34, verse 7, the NASB and the ESV begin with wild oxen, whereas the King James translates that Hebrew word with the word unicorn. In every occurrence of the Hebrew word, they use the word unicorn. And what's interesting is the elasticity of the Hebrew word, because they're not quite sure what it is, and it doesn't make sense in a, in a, in a sense to translate it unicorn, because we haven't seen any lately. But there is this ambiguity to the language. And you have that same idea then in Revelation 18.2 when it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which you have these world empires opposed to God falling. And it says, She has become a dwelling place of demons, and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. And you have this kind of language used in the judgment against the unbelievers. But in the day of vengeance, when God executes his wrath against the unbelieving, the emphasis is placed on the idea of everlasting. In verses 9 and 10, you have this everlasting burning. In verses 11 through 17, an eternal wilderness. This passage and those like it stress the eternal nature of this damnation with a forever burning and desolation. The land is desolate and non-productive. It is occupied by demons. And then when we read verses 16 and 17, notice how chapter 34 ends. But again, it's a picture of contrast with what we are about to read in 35. And we've seen this picture throughout the book of Isaiah. Judgment, hope, judgment, hope. Then we read verses 15, 16, and 17. I'll read verse 16. Seek and read from the book of Yahweh. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast a lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. There is this certainty stated concerning the judgment upon the unbelieving. It's not something that neither you nor I can lightly dismiss. The people that do not know God, that have rejected Jesus Christ, the outcome of that choice, that decision, is chapter 34. And as horrific and graphic as that depiction is, it is certain. It is certain. What God has ordered shall come to pass. You know, one of the most uh, perplexing questions asked of the audience is simply this. Is the wrath of God against the sinner just? Is it proportionate to the crime? Fallen humanity looks at the scene and concludes it is to be over the top or a little much. But is it? Especially when you contrast the statement with chapter 35. You cannot reject the one in 34 without rejecting also the other in 35. If 35 is true, if what we see in 35 and, and are about to read is true for us, then it must equally be true of what we read in 34 for them. And that is the picture that is given to us 
in our text. Listen then to chapter 35 and how it begins. And remember, 35 is following 34. Listen to 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. You have this picture of contrast in chapters 34 and 35. And you can see it in the land, the occupants, the everlasting and the vengeance. Now, what is interesting, if you've read 34 completely and you walk into 35, one of the questions you ask yourself is, wait, 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 what just happened? My wife and I hang out with our grandkids, and one of our grandkids, every time we're talking, he's half laugh listening. And we make a statement, and they go, oh, whoa, 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 what did you just say? Say that again? Well, that's what happens in 35. You've just read the devastation visited upon the people in 34, and all of a sudden the wilderness is blooming? What, what just happened? Here's the contrast or flip side to chapter 34. Here's the dream. The dream. We've just visited the nightmare. There's a day of vengeance coming, but there's equally a day of reward, a day of blessing. I want to show you something inside uh, the narrative, the story. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 61 for a moment. I'll read it if you don't wish to flip there, but Isaiah 61. I mentioned in our study that Isaiah saw the first and second coming of Christ as a singular coming. Isaiah didn't see the gap between the two. Isaiah did not see this idea of a prolonged period of time separating a first and second coming. He fully expected, as all Jews did, that when the Messiah came, the glory would follow. When it didn't come in Christ, they saw that as a means or a cause for rejection. But there's always been these two aspects to the purpose and program of God. In Isaiah 61, notice verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now notice with me Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, you'll remember that Jesus came to Nazareth, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read, and they handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah, and remember, there are no chapter verses. He takes it, he unrolls it, and he reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. But notice what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What he did not read from Isaiah 61 was the last part of verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God. His first coming is an announcement of the favorable day of the Lord. His second coming will be a day of vengeance. Well, he will judge those who are in rebellion against God. When we look at Isaiah 35, 
Isaiah 35 says three things twice. It speaks of the restoring of the land when the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. You have the restoring of the land repeated twice. You have the removal of the enemy repeated twice and the redemption of the people repeated twice. So rather than show you how structurally that plays out, I'm simply going to take the two statements and make them one. What we first see inside of Isaiah 35 is the restoring of the land. The prophet speaks of the day when the earth will be covered with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. If you're like me, you're longing for that day. And I've often said the older you get, the more prominent that idea becomes. God's people once made their exodus through a desert, but their final homecoming is through glorious abundance exploding with joy. And we see that at the end of chapter 35, but the day is coming when the entire earth will be remade. All of creation shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. Blossom abundantly. Rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord. For in verse 6, the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Again, you have that graphic depiction of this world, but the restoring of the land. As horrific as chapter 34 is, the opposite is equally true. When you and I finally arrive at the place that has been prepared for us, it will be a glorious experience and encounter. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Well, now believe in me. In my Father's mansion are many dwelling places. I have gone now to prepare a place for you. He is turning that wilderness into a glorious garden. And one day we will be reunited with him. The second thing we see inside of chapter 35 is the removal of the enemy. Verse 3 says, Strengthen ye the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. A day of reckoning is coming for the enemies of God. But in that day, we, the people of God, shall be rescued. Whatever it is that causes fear is removed. Whatever it is that prohibits and blocks is removed. Whatever it is that threatens and intimidates is removed. And the final enemy that shall be removed is sin, death, and the grave. We are to be encouraged even as the battle rages around us. God will come. He will clear the way before you. King David saying this truth in Psalm 23. I've been impressed how Isaiah uses the language of the psalmist. It says in Psalm 23, verses 4 and 5, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadows of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you, O Lord, are with me. It is your rod and your staff that protect me from my enemy. And you have prepared for me a table in the very presence of my enemies. And remember, you have the enemy, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, they're all pressing on the people of God. And in the midst of that, 
Isaiah the prophet reminds them that one day the land itself shall be restored and the enemy removed. All of us can latch on to that truth. The third thing repeated twice inside of Isaiah 35 is the redemption of the people. Very graphic language is employed in verses 5 and 6. Notice, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. We see that initially in the coming of Christ. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Verse 9, But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. Come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Did the Jew in that day ever experience such things? No. They were going into exile. But this is the promise of God for the people of God that that is offered and will indeed come to pass. This path portrays the most beautiful places in the world and brings their presence to barren lands. Salvation is like the great changes that water can make in a desert land. Death becomes life. Barrenness becomes fertility. Despair becomes hope. Whereas judgment looms over the wicked, the righteous have a different kind of life and hope. They see a different world. One might say they live in a different world. The ones under judgment see an oppressive world, but the godly picture another world, though they live in the same world for the moment as the wicked. The judged only see condemnation. The righteous know all wickedness must be destroyed altogether, but they know it is only a temporary stage as far as they are concerned. The knowledge of what they need to do is more deeply instilled in them now that the darkness surrounds them. The new day will soon dawn when all the barrenness of the darkness will become the beauty of of the new age. This is what awaits us as we trust God in all of it. Jesus Christ at his first coming brings the favorable day of the Lord. At his second coming, we will have the day of vengeance. And although this passage would offer the original hearers a great deal of hope as they went into exile, that is just a shadow of what was yet to come. Garden imagery is present throughout, first by describing the result of the curse and then describing the restoration of all creation. This is the essence of the seed promise, a reversal of the curse promised in the coming Messiah. A day is coming, a day is coming when all evil and injustice shall be reversed, when the curse will fully and finally be lifted and we will be ushered into the very presence of God, a very concrete tangible sensory experience just as Jesus faithfully inaugurated the Lord's favor at his first coming so also Jesus shall faithfully culminate the day of vengeance at his second coming Jesus Christ is the ultimate inaugurator and culminator of Isaiah 34 and 35 and the New Testament assures us as much in both the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. The Bible confronts us with this choice. Did you ever wonder how Lot ended up in Sodom? The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 13, verses 5 through 13, that he had a choice. 
Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. And so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated Lot from Abraham. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Verse 13 then gives us this dark editorial. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Lot had a choice, and Lot chose poorly. You have a choice, and how will you choose? One of the most popular passages in the Bible is Joshua 24, verse 15. Joshua says to the nation, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Today, what will it be? Each of us have a choice. Will we choose God and Jesus, or will we choose to reject them? The outcome for both choices is set. It is certain. And my prayer is that you will choose life and not death. Thankfully, in Christ, we have made that choice. We have chosen Christ. We have chosen life. We have the opportunity to choose. Choose. Choose this day. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have had to come as your people in this place and to once more consider these weightier truths. Isaiah 34 and 35 shows us what the outcome is of a choice. We choose God, we choose the promise, we choose Jesus, and we have chapter 35. But if we continue in our way and reject Jesus and do not choose God, we end up in 34. The outcome of that choice is certain. 34 or 35. It is a message we see repeated throughout the book of Isaiah. Father, I thank you that as your people in this place, that we have chosen you, we have chosen Jesus. And Father, what awaits for us is chapter 35. But if there is anyone here that does not know Jesus, they do not know you for the saving of their soul, Father, I pray that today the Spirit of God would act on them in such a way that they would believe, they would accept what Jesus has done in his coming. And that, Father, they would indeed move from chapter 34 into chapter 35. Father, as we partake of the elements today, may we be reminded of the gospel, the thoroughness of the sacrifice that Christ has made in our behalf, that he was and is our substitution. He is our advocate. He is the one who mediates in our behalf before you. Father, may the gospel for us be precious. Thank you, Father, for this time together as your people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.